Thanks, Liam. Well, as you said, my name is Mitch, and uh, I'm actually doing a ministry traineeship here at church, and it's been wonderful, but I had a previous life before that as a teacher. And generally, I found students to be quite amiable creatures. And uh, at Christmas, you would often be given a card or a gift. And uh, one stands out to me in particular, at Christmas time, myself and another teacher taught a class. And the other teacher received a gift card worth $20, and I received a gift card for $5. (laughs) And I'm sure they were trying to tell me something. I'm going to go with it is that I'm worth more than money to them. But maybe it wasn't. But another time actually stands out to me more, and it was when a student gave me a card at Christmas. It said, thanks for teaching me, Merry Christmas. It was homemade, it was very lovely, and I did appreciate it, and so I sat it on my desk. But then, because I hate clutter, and I don't like a messy desk, I put it in the bin. I know, I'm not a good guy in this story. Little did I know that that very same student who gave me the card also had the job of emptying the staff bins. Yep, your groans are appropriate. You can imagine exactly what happens next, and I really hope that you can empathise, not with the student, but with me. Because, because I felt horrible. I really did. It was actually surprisingly distressing, such a trivial thing, but I had a horrible feeling in my gut when I realised how I'd hurt this person. And it's just one of many times that I've been confronted with just a glimpse of my own thoughtlessness and my own brokenness. And I'm sure that this is a story you can relate to because we have all felt that horrible feeling at times. We've all felt distressed. A horror takes hold of you, doesn't it? And there are lots of other things that we struggle with that we feel the weight of as well, isn't there? Maybe for you it's loneliness, sadness, anxiety, grief or worry. There is a lot that burdens us personally, but also in the world, things like COVID, famines, droughts, floods, all of these things. I think most of us can relate to Christian from Pilgrim's Progress, who is weighed down by the burdens we carry through life. And on top of all of this, there is the great and unapologetic open wickedness in the world. It seems the world is grappling with pain and unrest from every angle. And a quick look through, through history, I think, shows this. So it's an important question. What do you do with all of this? It's a question almost as old as time and everyone wants and needs an answer to it. It's not cliche, it's very real. And today when we come to think about the cross... I think it brings all of this into focus. It brings into focus our rejection of God because that is what sin ultimately is, isn't it? That's the source. It's our rebellion of God. We live our lives largely ignoring our creator, pretending he doesn't exist and blatantly ignoring his generous communications to us. And the weight of sin, it's, it's heavy and it's insidious. And it even means that we fool ourselves into thinking that we are good, that things are going well and we don't actually need a creator, a God, a saviour. Well, if you're still not worried about sin, we look today at the Garden of Gethsemane and we can see very clearly that sin is terrifying because Jesus himself 
is terrified. Now, some context before we look at the passage. Gethsemane is the garden where Jesus goes just before his arrest, trial, torture and execution. It's here that Judas completes his betrayal. It's an intimate setting with just Jesus and a few of his disciples. Now, Good Friday is typically when we look at the narrative of the cross that is usual on the day behind, so we're in Gethsemane. And the Jesus we see in Gethsemane, he truly is distressed. If you have your Bibles in front of you, look at verse 37. It says that Jesus is sorrowful and troubled. Verse 38, his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. To the point of death. And we get the sense here that this isn't hyperbole. When our kids scrape their knee, we like to ask them if they think they'll live or if they think they'll die. We hope it will give them perspective, but generally they say we think we'll die. But this is, this is not that. Jesus is genuinely sorrow, sorrowful to the point of death. He falls to the ground and prays the same thing three times in his distress. And in the same account of this in Luke 22, we read that Jesus is so anguished that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, if you are a regular at St Michael's, this might strike you as quite a different picture of Jesus. This year, we've been looking through the Gospel of Matthew, and as we have done so, I've been struck by how composed, courageous and powerful Jesus is. He has an answer for every question. He heals people and even raises them from death. He casts out demons and controls the elements and even when woken up on a boat in a stormy sea, his response is, why are you panicking? Now he's not been emotionless, he is fully man as well as fully God. He is moved to compassion time and time again and in one case when Lazarus dies, Jesus wept. But unlike us, he's in control of his emotions. It's amazing how in control he really is. What's more than this, Jesus always knew where he was headed. Three times in Matthew, before we get to here, Jesus predicts that he will suffer and die. In fact, and this is really strange, I found it really interesting, there is more emphasis put on Jesus' distress and agony here in the garden than there is on the account of his crucifixion in the next chapter, 27. You might rightly ask, how is that possible? I remember watching the movie The Passion of the Christ when it came out. I was 14 or 15 and if you've seen it, you'll know that it portrays Jesus' death on the cross as the disgusting and evil thing that it is. The mock trial, blatant injustice, we see Jesus whipped, flesh torn out, thorns shoved on head, nails driven into wrists and feet, Jesus suspended in the air. It's horrific. But almost strangely, Matthew's account of the physical crucifixion is, by comparison, quite matter-of-fact. Matthew 27, 34 says this of the crucifixion, There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Matthew does soon record Jesus crying out before his death, but not at the physical pain. So what could possibly be worse than that? What can possibly be worse than the worst way to die that we've come up with? 
What do we make of this stricken Jesus in Gethsemane? Well, it has to do again with the nature and consequences of sin. See, as we look at the passage, we see something at the heart of Jesus' anguish, and it's a request. It's what he prays. So you see it in verse 39. It's a request about a cup. Jesus prays this, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. So we need to see what this cup is. That's key. And to see what it represents, we need to turn to the Old Testament. As always, our understanding of the New Testament is greatly informed by the Old Testament. And thank you to Ryan for reading that for us. And in that reading, we actually see that the cup is the cup of God's wrath. Not an unwarranted, spiteful wrath, but God's righteous anger and judgment in response to humanity's rebellion. So to drink this cup is to face God's judgment and wrath for sin. Now this helps us make sense of Jesus' distress, doesn't it? It seems there is something worse than physical death, as horrific as it is. In taking the cup, Jesus was going to face God's wrath. And to the Jews in particular, but to us as well, this would have been mind-blowing. The Jews had already had a taste of God's judgment in the exile. We read about it in Isaiah 51, where we read, The cup makes nations stagger and fall. The cup of judgment is God's right response to sin. And I want us to see that that is a good thing. God isn't uncaring about the world. He means to deal rightly with sin in the world, with righteous anger at our rejection of him. And we should thank God for his goodness in this. He doesn't let evil reign unchecked. The distress of the world and of us personally, it's not the end. But why Jesus? Why is Jesus thinking of drinking this cup? The Bible tells us that he was perfect, he never sinned, he didn't deserve it. And this is the glory of the cross, is it not? Rather than us facing God's wrath, God has a way to make us right with him, to restore right relationship with us while still punishing sin. And we see here in the Garden of Gethsemane that this way involves Jesus It is by Jesus stepping into our place to take the punishment that we deserve, to feel the weight of sin, of all sin. God's wrath that made nations stagger, meant for all nations, poured out on Jesus instead, on one man. And as we think, have thought earlier about the breadth and depth of sin, well, we can see why Jesus is terrified, can't we? Because what Jesus is contemplating here is being ripped from the love of the Father that he has known since before the world was created. Also that we might be brought into that love with the Father and have our sin counted against us no more. And if this is Jesus contemplating it, just imagine the full horror of what happened fully on the cross. There's nothing in history that compares to this. 
when I asked our senior minister, Sandy, for his tips for writing a Good Friday sermon, he wisely told me that illustrations are important, they're great, but be careful to say where they don't measure up to the cross. An example he gave me was a man laying down his life for his wife. It's a great illustration of what happens, but it's inadequate, isn't it? As Christ laid down his life for his enemies as well. And I think Sandy was so right. When contemplating the horror of the cross, I've thought for two weeks about an illustration, but I couldn't come up with one. A man jumping into the water to save a drowning man, it's good, but Jesus didn't die by accident. And he saved a lot more than one person. A soldier risking his life for the enemy, closer, but still not quite there. Every illustration, every comparison falls short just a fraction, a shadow and at best a glimpse of the greatest act of sacrifice, the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen. The eternal son in perfect relationship with the father who knew no sin, who painfully cries on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nothing we can face comes close. And why would you not want to follow Jesus? Why would you not follow someone who does this out of love for our sake? You can see here how much God desires you to be saved. And if you've ever wondered about the death of Christ, what it does, what it means, well, this is it. He died giving his life as a ransom for many, bearing sins, receiving punishment. He who knew no sin made sin for us. Well, knowing what our sin costs us, it shows us how serious it is, doesn't it? We know there is a God who sees and who judges sin for what it truly is, and we see its great cost in Christ. And if you are not yet trusting in God's work on the cross, are you ready to face God's wrath? Are you ready to stand up to it without Jesus having taken it for you? Because to ignore God's gracious gift of salvation at the great cost of his son, well, that's to face the judgment we all deserve. Well, my in-laws have a magazine in their bathroom. I'm sorry if this is getting too personal. I didn't tell them I was going to share this. Uh, It's called Gambling for Beginners. No, it's not. not. I'm sorry. It's Dolly. No, it's not either. I'm sorry. It's a time magazine. It really is. It's a time magazine of alternate histories. And as a history teacher, I find it fascinating because it looks through history and says, what would the world look like if important events hadn't happened? So what would the world look like if JFK hadn't been assassinated or if the moon landing never happened? And it's very interesting. If you'd like to know more afterwards about what the world would look like if Marilyn Monroe never married Arthur Miller, I can tell you. It's very... It's not that important. I don't know why it was in there. But but think for a moment about what the world would look like, what the alternate history would look like if Jesus had not chosen to drink this cup. What if God's wrath poured out on all of us Well, praise the Lord that it is not so. If you do trust in Jesus' wrath-bearing cross, 
Well, while we appreciate the nature of sin and how terrifying it is, we don't have to fear it. We don't have to fear judgment. If you put your trust in Christ, you can rest assured you won't face God's wrath. Jesus has already bore it and he did so willingly and obediently. Because despite knowing full well what he was doing and what it meant, Jesus willingly obeyed his father. Now, it's important to note that Jesus is not hiding away in the Garden of Gethsemane. It might look like it on a brief glance, but he's, he's not trying to get out of what's coming. He's not like me whenever there's washing up to be done, disappear into places that you will never find. But it becomes obvious that this is a place that Judas, the betrayer, uh, he knows very well. Jesus could have escaped, he could have avoided it, but he chose not to. When we read these incredible words in verses 45 and 46, Jesus says, look, the hour has come, rise, let us go. He faces it. And he came to earth voluntarily for this reason. And it's good to note then the prayer that he does pray three times. If it is possible, take this cup from me, but not as I will, but what you will. We read in these verses that Jesus prayed this three times and he's asking if there is another way, any other way that we can be saved and that God's wrath be satisfied. It's important to note that the question here is not whether to do God's will or not. He says, your will be done, not mine but just whether that way necessarily included the weight of the cross. And the answer is that there is no other way. Uh, We've seen other times in the Gospels, um, God speaking from heaven regarding Jesus. He spoke at Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration, God says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. This time, in answer to Jesus' repeated pleas, there is silence. Jesus didn't have to drink the cup. He didn't deserve to drink the cup. But as we look forward to Matthew 27, on the cross, he willingly drank it all. And we know that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, well, he really means it. Because not only did Jesus willingly obey, but he's the only one who could do this. In the garden, Jesus is left alone. He asks his disciples, those with him, to stay and keep watch in verse 38, but they failed to do that. He tells them again to stay awake and pray in 43, but again they fail. And if that's not enough, he comes back a third time and finds them sleeping Despite the disciples' assurances that they can stick with Jesus, we see that they can't. Even Peter, the brave disciple who declares he will follow Jesus to death, is about to deny him three times this very night. And one commentator I read said, the the disciples failing Jesus here is a microcosm of the world not being able to do what Jesus could. Perfect, complete willing obedience to God. When I thought about this, I thought about my own resolve. Have you ever left church feeling really convicted? 
You walk out going, I'm on fire, I won't do that again, I'll do quiet times every day, whatever it is. But how long does it take for that conviction to fade, for that fire to dwindle, for bad habits to set back in, for us to fail in what we felt so sure of just before? Well, thankfully, what we see here and what happens is not dependent at all on the disciples. And when it comes to our salvation, we really can do nothing. Our own efforts can't fix us. Our own efforts can't fix the world and make it right. We so often slip into thinking that Christianity is all about what we do, rules, obedience. We're very good at making it moralistic. But really, it's all about Christ's obedience, isn't it? It's all about Christ's obedience. Now, as Christians, we do need to be alert. We don't want to be caught like the disciples are here. We want to heed Jesus' words to watch and pray. But what are we alert to? We are to be alert to what Christ has done. We are to be alert to never forget Christ's redemptive work, his wrath-bearing sacrifice. Never forget that he did it willingly out of great love. Be alert and be reassured that God does not require any more payment than than what Christ has already given. When God sees those who trust in Christ... You no longer see sin. We have been made clean, restored, redeemed. We are able again to have right relationship with God. Yes, there's still sin in us in the world, but looking back at the start of the sermon, we know the God of love will return. And when he does, all will be put right. We will have right relationship with God and one another. How beautiful is the cross when we see it like this. How wonderful that Christ's final cry on the cross was not, why have you forsaken me, but it is finished. It is finished. When you think of important moments or settings for important moments in life, you might think of Parliament, where bills and laws are made. You might think of parties where we celebrate big moments. You might think of large crowds, or you might think of just time spent with me. Probably not. But really the most important moments of mankind both happen in gardens. Both times with just a few people present. And in both, the decision of the person present permanently changed the course of human history. I would say they were the two most important decisions ever made by anybody. It's a big call. But in the Garden of Eden, Adam chose to disobey God. Rather than accepting God's good rule, he chose to make himself ruler, ignoring his creator. And in doing so, he set mankind in rebellion to God. And he destined those who follow this way of obedience for judgment. In another garden, a long time later, at great cost, Jesus chose to willingly obey God. He finished his perfect life by dying in our place, 
so that sin is conquered once for all. Death is defeated. The new man, the new Adam, destined all to follow him to righteousness. We've no doubt heard the Easter story before many times, but you never want to forget what Jesus went through, what he suffered, what he did, because the cross is not wonderful unless you understand properly what happened. We thank God for the cross each week, as we should. We sing about it. Don't let it become hollow, empty, mundane. We see the magnificence in the cross when we see the magnificence of what Jesus did and what he saved us from. And it's in the garden where we see the point of agony as Jesus chooses to willingly do this for us. In the garden we see the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of God's love. We see tragedy leading to ultimate triumph. We see a choice carried through to glorious completion on the cross. And we see revealed for us a God who demonstrates the fullest expression of love that he laid down his life for us. Let me pray. Dear Father, we praise you for Christ's perfect willing obedience. May it forever be our hope and joy. We praise you that we do not suffer the fate that we deserve, but that those who trust in Jesus have right relationship with you. Lord, we see so clearly you desire all to be saved, and we pray, please let it be so. In your son's glorious name, amen.